You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Greetings. Uh, I'm Jim Finley. And I'm Kirsten Oates. Welcome to Turning to the Mystics. Welcome, everyone, to this bonus episode of Turning to the Mystics. And Jim and I are so excited to be here today with our very special guest, Professor Bernard McGinn. So let me tell you a little bit about him. Bernard McGinn is an American Roman Catholic theologian, religious historian, and scholar of spirituality. A specialist in medieval mysticism, McGinn is widely regarded as the preeminent scholar of mysticism in the Western Christian tradition. He is best known for his comprehensive nine-volume series on mysticism under the general title of The Presence of God. He is Naomi Shenstone Donnelly Professor Emeritus of Historical Theology and of the History of Christianity at the University of Chicago Divinity School and serves on the Committees on Medieval Studies and on General Studies. Today, we're so excited to tap into Bernard's profound expertise and love of Christian mysticism and gain further insights into the two Rhineland mystics Jim shared this year, Meister Eckhart and Mechtild of Magdeburg. So I'm here with Jim and our very special guest, Professor Bernard McGinn. We've been so looking forward to having you with us today. And uh, so welcome, Bernard. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) Welcome to you, Jim. It's good to be together again like this, yes, to be with Bernard too. Um, so, Bernard, I wanted to start by asking you what inspired you to embark on your deep and profound studies of the Christian mystics? Well, I was always interested in the mystics, even when I was in school in the 1950s and 1960s and doing theology. But of course, the mystics weren't a large part of the theological education in those days. So it was mostly reading on uh, reading on my own. But after I came to University of Chicago in 1968, I began to discover in in the late 60s, and especially in the 70s, that more and more of the graduate students who were coming to do theology were interested in mysticism. Uh, And uh, that, of course, fit in very much with my own interests. So I began teaching courses on the mystics and uh, getting a number of students who did their dissertations on, uh, on mysticism and the like. And about um, the late 1970s, close to 1980, I realized that there was no adequate theological treatment of the the mystics in in English. There were numerous good studies of particular figures, uh, excellent studies, but there was no really serious theological history of, uh, of Western Christian mysticism, which I thought would be very important for the students who were coming and the new the students that I thought were also in a sense, in the in the pipeline. So I envisaged my history originally uh, is about 1980, 81, as, as uh, having three volumes, so a kind of substantial history. But as I got into it, it grew and grew and uh, and grew, and so eventually it reached nine volumes, which I finished off in twenty uh, in twenty twenty one. So it's a much bigger project than I had anticipated. But I think it's 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 fulfilled its purpose. I know it's very widely used, even for relatively big books. It's been translated into a number of different languages. And it's been part of not something that's much, much bigger than me and bigger than than any of us. That's the turn to mysticism, which has been so crucial a part of uh, of both religious studies academically, but also of, of living the Christian life in the last 40 or 50 years. I can remember the 1940s and the 1950s when the mystics were, you know, what we used to call rare birds. There were a few of them, but people weren't very, you know, they were just put on the shelf there. Oh, yeah, there's Teresa of Avila. There's someone. Nowadays, reading the mystics and trying to learn from them, absorb their teaching, appropriate their teaching is a part of the lives of, I think, many, many, many serious and devout Christians, far more than it has been, uh, you know, in, over the past uh, century or two. So not only my work, but work like the Classics of Western Spirituality series, which I was heavily involved in and 
edited for 20, 25 years, you know, has sold millions and millions of volumes uh, with a 300, oh, 135 different books beginning publication in 1978. Those books are read widely. They're used in classrooms all over the, the English-speaking world. So it's, it's part of something that I, I would say is a kind of movement of the spirit in contemporary society, not just in Christianity, but also in Islam and in Judaism and other contexts. I've had many opportunities to teach with you know, students of Jewish mysticism, lesser extent Sufi. I mean, this, is a, this is an ecumenical age of mysticism, I would say. And you've really given shape to this tradition. That's that's what I so appreciate about your work. You've given you've given a shape to uh, what doesn't live out inside of a church or a denomination in a specific shape. So, uh, thank you. And I know so many people are grateful for the way you've you've done that. Yeah, I've always said. I mean, I, that was part of what I was trying to accomplish in my history, but. You know, I wouldn't have been able to do that without the input, particularly of my students and uh, my colleagues and others. I mean, I taught all these things and the reaction I got in terms of trying to present them in class and uh, the comments I had both from my students who went on to write dissertations from my colleagues who also got very interested in that, that shaped the history, you know, as much as my own efforts to, to do that. So again, it's a it's a collaborative, uh, collaborative exercise. Mm-hmm. I'm curious about how the mystics impacted you personally and your own kind of spiritual path. Well, I, I think that any any serious believer is going to have to be on what I would call the mystical path. Hmm. That is, their their purpose of their life is to find deeper contact with God. Now, that's why I talk about mysticism as existing on a continuum. You know, there are the great mystics that we all read who have gone far on this journey, much, much further than the rest of us. But I think anybody who's really interested in, in a serious uh, re- religious life and from many traditions, they're on that path already. And they're trying to go forward as far as they can and as far as they can also with the with the help of grace as, as a Christian speak of it. So I uh, try to uh, put their message into practice in my life as far as as far as I can. I do think it's a discipline, you know, that needs a certain commitment in terms of the way you live, in terms of the way you pray. I don't see how anybody can be a serious mystic unless they they pray in some way, not necessarily have it in the formal ways that often have been used in the past, but that attempt to find a contact with God by turning your attention to God, which is essence of prayer. I think mm-hmm. that's part of it. And I think that the more that I have studied the mystics, the more that I've recognized that's a kind of that's a kind of necessity because it, it can't be an abstract study. Uh, other aspects, uh, perhaps of the religious life, uh, can be more or less abstract. But I don't think the study of spirituality, mysticism, in the broad sense, can be uh, itself engaging. Mm-hmm. It has to be personally appropriated if you're really going to understand what's going on, rather than just kind of look at it from the outside. At least mm-hmm. that's my own my own take on studying mysticism. Mm-hmm. I, I like a kind of heartfelt participation. It's not just learning something. Right, yeah. And, and you know, living the, the mystic life is also reading the mystics. Uh, you talked, I think you said you were doing Guigo the second. Well, you know, yeah. Guigo's exercise start with Lexio. They do. And that's the foundation. That's the foundation of the spiritual and mystical life. And the Lexio that we do today is, is very much reading of the classic mystics in the past. Uh, so it's a development out of that medieval pattern that Guigo once announced. And I think Lexio then is absolutely crucial. And I think that's why so many people have turned to reading these mystical texts, many of which were not available 40 or 50 years ago. Few of the great mystics were, but now almost many, almost all of the great classic mystical texts have been have been translated, not just in the classic series, but things like Cistercian publications and various other uh, it, it, various other publication uh, projects in in other languages as well but i'm thinking primarily here of uh, of english and i think that necessity for reading careful reading of the great classic mystical texts is is foundational Mm -hmm. people are turning to them all the time Mm -hmm. 
And that's at the the heart of this podcast too, Jim, leading leading our listeners in Alexio practice. So yeah. Jim, did you have anything you would like to chime in with here? Yes, I would. I for you to expand on what you're saying is that um one of the things Merton once said in the monastery to the novices, he said, he, at least there were many people in the world, this would have been in the 60s, early 60s, many people in the world that were being led into more mystical dimensions of God's presence in their life, but they had no one to help them understand what was happening to them and no one to offer guidance in it this way. And so when I left the monastery and started leading retreats and with the podcast, I found that's really true. And so one thought I have that comes through in the mystics, I want to pick up on what you're saying, is that that we're, we're living in incremental realizations of infinite generosity of God. So that even the least sincere stirring of God's presence in our life is the presence of God. And we're already on the same path, like a continuum that the mystics are on. And that's what I hear you saying too. It's like an, it's like an endless enrichment of this unfolding generosity like this. Uh, and therefore, would you say then there's no, uh, the mystics, the classical text seems so concerned in helping us to discern like the turning or the touch or how, how to offer guidance, but there is no decisive point at which it becomes mystical. It's like, a, it's a qualitative enrichment. And this is why it's so important, uh, you know, not to think of the great mystic as somehow a different species of humanity. That's right. That's <laughs> you know, that, oh, we can't be like them because we're on the same path. They lead the way. They have gone much further. They've had much deeper insights than we have, but we're still on the path. And Merton was particularly good about that in oh, emphasizing in a book like uh, New Seeds of Contemplation, emphasizing the necessity for communication. And for anyone who has had any contact with God, that contact is not for themselves in any selfish, personal, you know, just personal way. It's meant to be communicated. That's why Merton is one of the great mystics of of the past century. I I just published a book this year on modern mysticism and introduction, doing 10 figures, five men and five women, of whom Merton is one. So he, he, for me, is very much a mystical. Tell me if this resonates with you. It's just like, say, classical music. It's very rare for us to say that we're going to be a Beethoven or a Mozart, but we can all enjoy it. We participate in it because it's part of the dowry of our being in a way. You know, we're, we're engaged in it. And I think these mystical teachings are like that too, in a way. I've used that illustration in the past. Another illustration I've used is sports, basketball. Lots of people like to play basketball. Not everybody is a Michael Jordan. (laughs) So they're the great basketball players. People looked up to, but that doesn't mean that there aren't aren't a lot of people who really enjoy playing basketball, even though they're never going to be world famous. Uh, All these things are need to be understood as integral and uh, and on you know in, in this kind of continuum of integral search for God's presence. Bernard, do you have a definition of mystical awakening that you, that you use? Well, I, I developed um, in course of my history and in and in several articles and things, I developed what I call a kind of heuristic or working uh, uh, description because it's hard to define and there are many, many definitions. But I think of mysticism as that part, that particular part or element of uh, sincere belief, Christian belief, or also Islam, that concerns the the, uh, preparation for the attainment and the effect of a deeper sense of God's presence in one's life. And I use that description because, first of all, I want to emphasize that mysticism is not the whole of religion. It's a part or an element. Uh, Secondly, that it's uh, it's not just a moment of, you know, mystical awareness or some particular grace. It's a it's a life uh, commitment that involves preparation, some forms of attainment, but also then the effect that this has on the life of the mystic. Because somebody comes along, oh, I had an experience of God. Well, maybe you did. The only way to judge that is the effect that this has had on the person's life and the effect that they have had on other kinds of people. And I talk about the presence of God rather than mystical union, because I think union, uh, presence is a bigger term, bigger category than just union. Many mystics have spoken about union, and it's a key uh, part of the mystical traditions. 
But other mystics haven't wanted to talk about union with God. They talk about following God. They talk about seeing God. They talk about hearing God. They talk about touching God. And some mystics like St. Augustine uh, even were very hesitant about speaking about being united with God because that was what the Neoplatonic philosophers had talked about. And Augustine wanted to differentiate his sense of God's presence from what Plotinus and others have said. So that's a uh, that kind of heuristic description is what I've worked with over the course of the years. And it's a very generous and general, I mean, uh, general picture. Many people would say, well, that's not definite enough. The mystic tradition is too broad, I think, to be narrowly circumscribed by very strict uh, definitions. So my definition is messy, but it's. I hope it's more inclusive. I'm thinking on seeing people in spiritual direction, like sitting with people and talking to people about the awakening. That, would you say, too, there's something about this dawning of this awareness of presence is they become aware that it's already begun and they're trying to articulate or put words to something they don't understand that's very subtle or delicate. Would you say that's often true? It kind of is, is like an awareness of something that's unfolding out of their heart. It's a oneness that's already resonating in them. They don't know what to make of it. Like how to, would you say that's true? That it's. I, I think um, that's true of most uh, of most people, and it is. It is very difficult to describe. I mean, even you know, even for those who have uh, been educated in, in the spiritual traditions, there's a quality of ineffability yeah. about mystical consciousness. That always remains that it, it's an, it's a necessary impossibility yes. to, uh, to really define, to, to really talk about this. It's really impossible, but it's necessary. Yes. It has to be done. So you have to try to communicate what really in the long run cannot be communicated. And that's part of what makes, I think, the mystical tradition so, so fascinating is that people are, are up to an impossible task, but it's a task that they feel called to yes. by what they have felt in their hearts and therefore what they feel that they would like to communicate to other people to invite them you know on uh, onto the path would you say too another interesting thing i'm thinking now spiritual direction again this kind of thing is that it's like two people sharing this neither one can explain it but you can tell when you're in the presence of it that is you can tell when you yourself have been quickened by it you can tell you're in the presence of someone who's being in the process of being quickened. And when they see that they're seen, that they, they're, they're not alone in this, it creates a kind of a contemplative, in media ecclesia, like in the midst of this oneness. And my second thought I'd ask you to respond to, is somewhere in Aquinas in the Summa, he talks about knowledge by co-naturality. That is, you know what you know by being, and so the mystical union is more knowledge by co-naturality rather than about about something. Would you say this is true about recognizing it, that you see that you're seen, there's like a resonance, like creates, and then secondly, this co-natural, like the actualization of a divine potential in all of us as persons created by God in the image of God. Yes, no, I, I, co-naturality, you know, is a very fine term, and what Aquinas has to say about that, I think is extremely, extremely useful because it's very, very different from what we call scientific knowledge. Yeah, that's right. And you can, you know, you can circumscribe and you can define and you can put into categories and even formulas. Mystical knowledge isn't that way at all. It's a, uh, it's a knowledge uh, that connaturality is good. It's a knowledge that you feel and that you uh, learn something from, but it's not the kind of knowledge that you can put into easy categories. And, uh, and in any way defined, as I said, the, the, the mystic knows more of who God is, but cannot tell you more of what God is. That's great. I love that. That's so helpful. More of who God is, but not what God is. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. How, how do you think the mystics help us, Bernard, in, in living our lives in fidelity to God's will, to this path? I would say it's it's hard to give a, a single answer to that, both for the difference of the readers of the mystics and for the mystics themselves. Mm. This is why reading certain mystics will have a wide appeal 
uh, and some others may not have a very wide appeal, but may have a particular resonance with certain kinds of readers. It's often interesting, I, given talks at parishes and other places like that, people will say, well, you know, which mystics should I read? And there's some mystics who are hard to read. And you need a certain amount of preparation and background. There are the mystics, and I frequently take, take Julian of Norwich as, as an example of that, who have an accessibility, you know, a general accessibility that not everybody has. Yeah. And uh, I've often, when uh, parishioners or others would come up with that question, I'd say, well, if you've never read any mystics, try reading Julian of Norwich. You know, she's she's a wonderful writer. Uh, uh, she has an accessibility because of her life story and the fact that she's, you know, writing out of her visionary experiences, but she's writing for everybody. I mean, she says in one place in the short text, you know, I'm not good because I've had the visions. I'm only because many people who haven't had visions love God and their neighbor far better than I do. Well, that's that's right on. I mean, that that is the mystical that is the mystical litmus test, if you will. Do you love God more and your neighbor more rather than have you been given special gifts? Even the mystics who were given special gifts never thought that they were they were the, the core of the essence of mysticism. They're only the, the, the icing on the cake. And sometimes the icing is tasty, but it's not necessary. And mm-hmm. like Eckhart, very insistent. You know, the special experiences are, are not, a, not a good idea. They can be very misleading. And someone like Teresa Babalu had lots of special experiences. She says the same thing. In one place, she said, you know, if any of her nuns start uh, climbing up to heaven, especially, she'll kind of pull them down <laughs> by, by the ankles, send them to the kitchen to do a little honest work. You get the feeling sometimes when I sit with people that are seeking this, is that uh, it's so intimately self-disclosing that it's, infinitely closer to them than they can imagine. And in the sincerity of being humbled by it and listening to it and just opening their heart, that is the way. You know, I mean, it's like it's an endless enrichment of an unfolding of presence. And 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 that's what I think is disarming because we live in a society, like Gabriel Marcel has a big distinction on mystery and problem. And the problematic is quantifiable and objective. The mystery is uh, this un- unexplainable immediacy of the richness of being itself and life itself. And that's what's so, I think people are so hungry for this because we, we all know it's true because we've tasted it. But where can I find somebody in whose presence I can know that I'm not alone and be guided? And that's that's the benefit of these sharings that we do with people. Would you say that's true, that this is? No, I, 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 would, I, would, I would very, very much agree with that. And this is why I, I, I emphasize the reading of mystical texts, but I think it's also the human connection yeah. through spiritual direction, through spiritual friendship, the great tradition of spiritual uh, friendship, where two people are not necessarily in a relationship of director and directee, but yeah. in, a, in a relationship of kind of mutual search and their friendship enhances that searching. Uh, and of course, this is a wonderful part of the mystical tradition. Elred of Raveau, the Cistercian, wrote a great, very p- powerful and personal uh, treatise on just how important spiritual friendship was. Yes, so it's those, those human relationships, and some of them are in terms of spiritual direction. Others of them are in terms of, of the whole spiritual friendship uh, notion. Uh, one more thing on this too, on path, on reading the mystics. Tell me what you think of this. How you, what I told people, because in a way it's daunting if you just sit and start to read it. But if you read it very slowly, it's the one-liners that get to you. You know, something is so stunningly beautiful. And if you would sit with it as the, as the lexio itself in a meditation, way, and the more you do it, the more you connect the dots the more you're being mentored by them into how to move spaciously in a kind of a, a oneness with them. Does that make sense in the, like the Lexio reading mystics rather than? Yeah, and, and the whole notion of Lexio Divina as it's been revived emphasizes slow reading. That's right. Which is exactly the opposite, of course, of so many people today were fast reading, you have to read so much, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the spiritual traditions, mysticism, based on slow reading. 
meditative reading, ruminative reading, as the monks used to call it, that is just taking a, a, a bit of text and chewing it for it for its inherent uh, wisdom. I mean, a good example of that in Meister Eckhart's sermons. You know, you just sit down and read a lot of Eckhart's sermons, you'll get lost. I mean, your head is spinning. If you read an Eckhart sermon, then they're not terribly long. If you read it very slowly and meditatively and go back and read it, you'll get a tremendous amount out of it. It's meant to be uh, read as a form of uh, of Lexio of Lexio Divina. And this is true of many other uh, mystical texts as well. So if you, I mean, academics may have to read these things more rapidly to try to make categories out of them and fit them. But people who are reading primarily for the spiritual benefit, slow down. The slower, the slower you go, the better it is, I think. And one more thing to unpath this thing about reading the mystics. It's something that struck me when I was in the monastery, you know, chanting the Psalms. And the monks chant the Psalms over and over, like chanting. And some of them, they've been doing it for years. You know, and you get the sense of the endlessness of it. You know, it's a nonlinear kind of tea. And I often think my library here with the mystics, you can p pull any other books off the shelf, randomly open and read one paragraph out loud, and everything they say is it. You know what I mean? Everything they say is like bodies and it touches. There's a kind of consistency of- uh, Yeah, that notion of reading out loud, I think is very important too, which I, I didn't uh, uh, advert to there at first, but often, you know, reading slowly and then reading these, these texts out loud as a part of the Lexio Divina, Divina practice. One of Merton's best books, I, for my money, is book, um, not as much read, Bread in the Wilderness. Yeah, beautiful. Is his meditative uh, book on reading, on reading and praying the Psalms. I think that's, for me, one of the two or three best of the Merton books. I'm curious to know, from your perspective, Bernard, that you, you're saying there's been a, a movement towards uh, the mystical. And um, I'm just wondering, what do you think, that it's bringing that that was lacking. What, what what's it adding in for people? Well, I think it's restoring or trying to restore a better balance. Uh, I often uh, use uh, the model of the uh, great writer on mysticism, uh, Friedrich von Hugel, who wrote in the early part of the twentieth century. His mystical element of religion in two big volumes is difficult reading because his style is awful. But his theory of religion. Uh, is that religion consists of three elements, the institutional element, the intellectual element, and the mystical element. He goes mm -hmm. at this in considerable detail. Um, and I find that very, very helpful because I think what happened, particularly in many aspects of modern religion, I'm speaking particularly here about Catholicism, the institutional tried to overwhelm <laughs> the intellectual and also push out the mystical. And that's a very unhealthy religion. Mm -hmm. uh, this was von Hugel's. And of course, von Hugel suffered for this because it's a time of the modernist uh, controversy in the first decades of the 20th century. So I think what's been happening with this return to the mystical, the traditional uh, spirituality and mysticism, the attempt to rebalance the picture so that the institutional does not dominate over the intellectual and the mystical. And uh, it's very important to recognize that there are dimensions in religion that we put under the term of mysticism, where institutional, the institutional approach does not really work. And the, those who concentrate only on the institutional frequently lose sight of the importance of that. So I think we're we're trying, I say trying because it hasn't worked out perfectly, nothing ever does. We're trying to rebalance mm. the, the religion, particularly in Christianity, I think. It's harder to talk about the other religions, but that on Hugo's model was written for Christianity, actually. But we're trying to rebalance the three perspectives, the three aspects. And that's a healthy way to practice religion as against a form that would so dom uh, put such a dominant emphasis on the institutional, there's no real room for the in in intellectual, which always has to kowtow to what the institution says, and there's no room for the mystical mm. right. or other kinds of wisdom than those that can be easily categorized and put on the shelf. Mm. Yeah, that's helpful. And the mystical being... I, I don't need to go into a church to find God in my experience. I can. Well, I, I would say it, it's fundamentally a search for the presence of God. It mm. doesn't be opposed to the institutional, 
that wasn't what uh, von Hugo was trying to say. What von Hugo was saying is that you have to try to balance the three. If one says, I don't need the other two, or if one says, I can dominate the other two, then, then you're sick. Your religion is a sick religion. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, that's helpful. I'm sure there are people who find God apart from institutions, and the institutions today have had so many problems. I can well understand people who say, I don't want to have anything to do with the institution. But that's where von Hugo is a kind of corrective. He says, well, that's because the institution has been misunderstood. And if we can understand these three elements, institutional, intellectual, and mystical, in a healthier way and see how the healthy a religious personality tries to integrate those three, then we'll be in a better place. Two things I'd like, Bernard, to expand on along those lines, too. One, you know, at the, in the last chapter of uh, New Seas of Contemplation, Merton talks about these little quickening moments of awakening, like, in the, like turning to see a flock of birds descending or knowing love in your own heart. So there's a certain, like, quickening where you're like, momentarily silenced by the immediacy of presence this way. And there's another realm of presence where a person's in their lexio, their meditation, their prayer, and it drops off into silence. Like it, it goes beyond words. But then the but then the words return, enriched by that silence, you know, it's speaking out of that silence. And the other thing I'd like you to respond to, which is related to it, is that the mystical oneness, this presence, is like beyond the darkness of this world. But it actually radicalizes our presence in the world. Because God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son. So the mystically awakened person in the midst of the world is actually in this deepened state of the presence of God in the presence of everybody. It doesn't, would you say both of those are true about silence and then speaking out of it? And also about the world, beyond the world, but it radicalizes our true presence in the world. Would you say mysticism has both of those qualities to it? I would say so. I, I, I'd add a third, which would be darkness. Oh, yeah. yeah. And that's very good, because the silence and darkness in that sense go together. Many of the great mystics, not just John the Cross, but many, many others have experienced and emphasized and plumbed the darkness of the absence of God as a new way of getting a better sense of the of God's presence when God is really present as against the false images we have of God that we often put up ourselves. So unless you have the ability to get into that silence where God isn't speaking, enter the darkness where God seems to be absent, you're in danger of committing idolatry. I mean, this is often the way in which the mystics put it. That is, you're creating your own picture of God which doesn't have much to do with God's actual reality and presence. Right. Now, that's why darkness and silence have been so crucial in the, in the whole uh, whole mystical tradition. And as I said, many people you know, think only of John of the Cross, who's a wonderful exponent of that, but it's all over the place. Yeah. It's all over the place. And uh, many, of, many of the great mystics have used it and em emphasized it in different ways and in different valences. Uh, so it's, there's a lot more darkness of God in the whole tradition than than just John of the Cross, so he's one of the great exponents of it. Would you say this too? I love this saying, John of the Cross, he's, oh, night lovelier than the dawn. You know, you're actually blinded by all like that. Would you say too, there's a fascinating insight in the mystical dimensions of, of the mystery of death? Because death, to, uh, like the passing, like immense darkness, but we say paradoxically, it's the gate of heaven. So in a way, there's a mysterious continuity between the inner death of the inner darkness as is shining forth of this light and the physical death that's approaching all of us, that there's somehow, like our deathless nature shines out through this. Would you speak to that? Does that make sense, what I'm saying, that there's, you see resonances there? I would call it the great transitus, the great trans, the passing over. And, you know, people refer to uh, Francis, Francis of Assisi's death as a transitus. It's a passing over, and it uh, it involves uh, identification with Christ in Christ transitus, which wow. is the original passing over. Full, so I think for most mystics, that's a crucial part. You might say one of the most crucial aspects. It's what the whole thing aims towards, right? Exactly. passing over into God, but you don't 
do that in a full sense until you pass over through death, the way Christ had to go through death in order to to achieve his uh, his resurrection. Yeah. So, and all the mystics who speak about you know uh, what I call dereliction, mystical dereliction, was much more beyond mere mere suffering, mystical dereliction and and desolation. They always put it under the category of Christ's passion and death on the cross. Yeah. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yeah. Although it's also in the Old Testament, particularly with Job, the, the first major Western exponent of mystical desolation is actually Pope Gregory the Great around the year 600 in his moral interpretation of the book of Job. It's a huge thing. It goes on for thousands of pages. But Gregory was very much attracted to Job because Job's suffering for him was a model, a foretaste, a prefiguration of the suffering of Christ. And also uh, it was in Job and in Christ on the cross that Gregory sees the meaning of his own suffering because he he was in health, in ill health for much of his life and, and apparently suffered a good deal. So there's a lot of mystical desolation in, in Gregory the Great. You know, uh, a thousand years before <laughs> before John of the Cross, actually. Would you say this that this transitus, this crossing over, that in these deep realizations we're already crossing over, but it's hidden. But when our death comes, we cross over in the light of glory. That would you say that's true? Like epistemology of realized eschatology, like it's already happening, but it's obscure, hidden. But our biological death comes at transitus, it won't be, there'd be nothing hidden in it. it would, do you think that's true or do you think that's... No, I, I think uh, it, it may be hard to realize for people to wrap their mind around that, that uh, the moment of passing over in death is, uh, is crucial. It's the goal, actually, of that mystical path that uh, we've that's been right. talking about. Yeah. And uh, this is why... You know, meditating on death, memento <laughs> mori, was always a big part of uh, of the mystical the mystical tradition. But it was not, uh, you know, in, in that sense, it, it was not meant to be a negative, fearful thing. Exactly. It was meant to be a, a meditation on what will complete it, what will bring it to fulfillment. Mm. And that's why much of what the great mystics have written about death, I think, can be. Can be very. I mean, I'm, I mean, Francis of Assisi again is a, is a marvelous model of this. When you look at um, uh, his uh, his life, but when you look at his his sparse readings, but especially the Canticle of the Sun, where he hymns Holy Sister Death, and it's obvious Francis is waiting to greet Sister Death as a very crucial part of that of his transition, his transitus. Turning to the mystics will continue in a moment. Explore art as a spiritual practice in the next issue of Wanting, the biannual journal from the Center for Action and Contemplation. Wanting, Art and Spirituality features images and reflections from leading actors and musicians, including Scott Avett, Josh Radner, Lourdes Bernard, and more. Get your copy today at cac.org slash wanningart. That's cac.org slash O-N-E-I-N-G-A-R-T. Have you taken an online course with the Center for Action and Contemplation? Explore the intersection of ancient wisdom and Jesus' teachings in The Divine Exchange, an online course featuring Cynthia Bourgeau. Fully embrace divine interaction each day, starting June 16th. Register today at cac.org slash online dash ed. That's cac.org slash O-N-L-I-N-E dash E-D. I'm going to move us to talking about uh, the two mystics that we covered this year in our, in our two seasons, and that's Meister Eckhart and Mechtild of Magdeburg. And we're very much looking forward to hearing your reflections on that, Bernard. But uh, Jim, do you want to just set the scene of how you approached Eckhart? Yes, especially back-to-back with Mictelt. But this would also be true of Bernard, too, the love miss. Is that I, one way I put Eckhart or understand Eckhart is that, in a sense, Eckhart is speaking of an infinite generosity 
of God being poured out, like a self-donating act of the presence of God given to us as a gift of our own presence and our nothingness without God. But the point is, and therefore the, the path then for Eckhart is not one of attaining because nothing's missing because of the, the ground of God and our ground. But the point is, how can we be healed from what hinders us from realizing nothing's missing? So the path of detachment is really this liberation from these possessiveness of heart into this fullness that's already there in God. And so the first thing I want you to respond to is that if that rings true and how you could refine that or expand on it. And the second thing, then when you read Michtelb, her love language is so stark. I love Michtelb's language. She's such a succinct poet. You know what I mean? She's so of this love of God. And also Bernard, Kirsten and I listened to your talk on Bernard of Clairvaux. Uh, it was one of the talks you gave, and amo ovia amo, I love because I love. And when I was in the monastery, they had a stone statue of St. Bernard, and he's holding a scroll, and oh, amo ovia amo, I love because I love. So it's so interesting when you put those two together. So first Eckhart, as nothing's missing, so detachment leading to the birth and the ground, and then you hold up Michtelt or Bernard, how do you see those two modes of, a, a presence, and how do they illumine each other? How would you respond to, because it was kind of striking for the students, I think, to the listeners when we put them side by side. One analogy that I, I've often used um, to describe the mystical tradition is that it's a great symphony. It's a great symphony. That is, it's, a, it's an orchestra composed of many musicians playing different instruments but designed to come together into a magnificent whole. Uh, I developed that idea that Hans Urs von Balthasar once spoke about truth as symphonic, which is a wonderfully pregnant uh, phrase. And um, in thinking about the mystical tradition, I've, I've used that to, to say that the tradition has different instruments. It has different writers. They play different instruments. They sound differently. They are supposed to complement each other in the long run. And uh, it's not just even one or two different mystics, like great mystics like Mechthild and Eckhart, but it's the whole symphony. And uh, I, I do think there is a symphonic truth to the, the mystical tradition then. But we can you know pick out different people playing different instruments. And in that sense, uh, Eckhart and, and Mechthild are, are two quite different figures, although Eckhart probably had some knowledge of, uh, of Mechthild. And for Eckhart, I would say what has always struck me is, is I talk about Eckhart as a mystic of realization, acknowledgement. It is true, exactly as you put it, that everything is there, but we don't know it. <laughs> we haven't realized it. Right. We haven't acknowledged that all this is true. We have we have forgotten what we're supposed to know. So Eckhart is preaching to wake his audience up and to get them to acknowledge and to realize what's already going on in their lives, but they don't pay any attention to. So he's he's trying to wake the audience up. This is why he often says in his preaching ridiculous and uh, off the wall things because he wants the people. I mean that most of them are asleep. <laughs> which is also true a lot of a lot of audiences to preachers today they're asleep they're dozing there so Eckhart will say something absolutely ridiculous which he knows will wake them up and then he's going to explain it then he's going to put it within the context and use that shock of of the outrageous <laughs> to try to get them to understand That's true. That's true. to understand the, the way things are but that they don't think about so, uh, you know, that's why reading Eckhart, particularly in the sermons, but same is true in the more technical uh, Latin works, is uh, it's meant to be a kind of wake-up call. Mm -hmm. It's meant to challenge you. It's meant to say, how can he say that? You know, that's absolutely ridiculous. But he, uh, but he, when you put it back in context, then he will try to explain why the very powerful things he just said about how the birth of the word and the soul happens in us in no way different from the way it happens in the in the Trinity itself. You say, how can that be? Isn't that heretical? Well, Eckhart, Eckhart will say, but it is true, and here's what it means. And you do have to make certain kinds of distinctions, uh, etc. Et Eckhart talks a lot about love. 
And it's actually one of the most frequent topics in his sermons, if you sit down and count. So this notion that Eckhart is an intellectual mystic and Mechthild is a love mystic, I think that's a lot of hogwash. Both Eckhart and Mechthild talk about knowing and loving, but they do them in very different ways. Yeah. And Eckhart does not use the highly erotic language about love that Mechthild of, of Magdeburg does. That's very, very obvious. There's very little of that in Eckhart at all. Uh, but that doesn't mean that love as a reality, fundamental reality in the universe isn't, isn't important for him. But you get a very different flavor when you read Mechthild and the way in which she uses language, particularly erotic language, to describe the relationship of, of her soul to uh, uh, to God. And um, what's terribly uh, remarkable also about Mechthild is the sheer literary skill of her writings. I mean, she uses a whole variety of different genres. She uses poetry, she uses dialogues, she uses discussions, et cetera, et cetera. Mechthild was a kind of literary genius, which is really remarkable. And it doesn't necessarily come across unless you uh, approach her in that way, that she, in a certain sense, has a literary genius that I think comes across through the variety of genres that she uses and the way in which she speaks so personally and powerfully, particularly about her erotic experiences of God, famous 44th chapter in the first book, which is this little drama of the love between Christ and the soul. I mean, you could put it on stage because mm -hmm. it's got, it's got you know, the Christ, the divine lover. It has the soul. It has, you know, the accompaniments uh, who are in there. It has stage settings about they go here and they go there, and then they go into the bridal chamber, et cetera. I mean, it'd be nice to put that to, to make a little play out of it, uh, and you know that but you you won't get anything like that in Eckhart. So they they complement each other in a number of in a number of uh, different ways, uh, and uh, I mean it would take a whole uh, a whole book, you know, to really spell out the complementarity, uh, which was uh, the complementarity in in very important ways, but also the the, the differences in terms of the use of language. Terms of some of the theoretical issues that uh, that that are involved, but Eckhart is, for instance, a profound theologian of the Trinity, but it's put mostly within a very scholastic and speculative way. Uh, Mechtel brings you into the the uh, the Trinity as a living conversation between the three persons of the Trinity, and it's called the Council of the Trinity Concilium Trinitatis, where she brings you right in there. You can hear them talking to each other about what we're going to do with the world and how we're going to predestine Mary. Mary is an important part of the Concilium Trinity. We're going to predestine Mary as the mother of uh, of, of Christ and bringing the word into the world. So there's, um, there's a literary and a dramatic, I suppose is the word I'm looking for, dramatic sense in, in Mechtil that I think is, is not there in Eckhart. They're different people. Ben, could you unpack the path of detachment with like you through your lens, what, what does he mean by detachment? Getting rid of everything that's not necessary. For Eckhart, the, there are three fundamental practices that are part of the mystical path. Detaching, birthing, and breaking through. Mm. And detachment is getting rid of everything that we think we need, but that we really don't need, that are really superfluous and unnecessary. We're that so the worst thing about our lack of awareness about the reality of the world is that we're attached to things. We think that they belong to us. We grab them and we want to enjoy them and hold them to ourselves. Record, that's the primary mistake. You can't do that because that's absolutely impossible. You have to recognize that nothing belongs to you. You have to detach yourself and you detach yourself not only from all the things that you think are so special, you have to detach yourself from yourself. Mm -hmm. And in the long run, you even detach yourself from God, at least God as you conceive of him, because the God you conceive of him is always going to be limited. It's going to be, in some sense, an idol. So detaching is absolutely crucial. Detaching is what allows you to recognize what's happening inside you. What's really happening inside you is the birth of the word and the soul. And the word is always being born in your soul, whether you realize it or not. But if you begin to realize it, then you may be able to begin to live in a different way. First of all, it will be a way of absolute detachment. Secondly, it will be a way, a way of service. The word came, became man and became 
took on flesh in order to serve humanity. And then eventually those recognitions will lead you to what's most uh, challenging, I suppose you could say in Eckhart's thought, breaking through, getting to the depth of reality, breaking through even God insofar as we conceive of God, even God insofar as he sees a trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When Eckhart talks about breaking through, he is very, very radical. And that's, again, designed, I think, to get people to, to wake up that there's, there's a reality to God that Eckhart often speaks of as the ground, the grunt, in which we are one with God in a way that's inconceivable to us. God's ground is the soul's ground, and the soul's ground is God's ground, as he says over and over again in, in his sermons, Sermon 12, to give an example. But And how can that be? How can there be no difference between our ground and God's ground? Isn't that pantheism? Isn't that heresy? Isn't that dangerous stuff? Shouldn't we burn this guy at the stake for making mm -hmm. statements like that? Well, Eckhart said, I'm trying to wake you up. <laughs> <laughs> if you can only realize that your ground is God's ground and God's ground is your ground, then you could begin to live the way God lives. Mm. And how does God live? God lives without a why. Without a why. Ona varumba, sunda varumba. That's the only way to live, without a why. That's Eckhart's ethics. The only thing you have to do is to live without a why. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but why do we have to live without a why, Bernard? See, notice how the ego's addicted to searching for the, and that's what he's trying to break open, I think. <laughs> so if our ground and God's ground are the same right. ground, right. then we have to live the way God lives, which is without a why. God has no purpose outside himself. He doesn't act because of something. He only acts because he's God. You already mentioned Bernard of Clairvaux, and I do want to unpack the Latin because you spoke the Latin, but you didn't uh, um, translate it for us earlier because I think there's some kind of harmony there between that uh, Latin phrase and this living without a why. So. Yes, oh, there is that. This is Bernard of Clairvaux's 83rd, sermons on, 83rd sermon on the Song of Songs. Why do I love? I love in order to love. That is, love has to be without any purpose beyond the sheer ex and, and this is the background, a different way of putting what Eckhart is, is putting. And uh, Eckhart is actually not the first who talks about living without a why. Some of the earlier 13th century mystical women uh, also use that kind of language, Beatrice of Nazareth, for example. And um, Beatrice of Nazareth is a Cistercian. I think she develops uh, some of her things out of uh, her knowledge of Bernard. Bernard of Clairvaux. I mean, that's uh, Bernard's greatest uh, text is that 83rd of the yeah. sermon, Song of Songs. If you want his mysticism in a nutshell, that's that's what to read. Mm. Do you mind saying the phrase again in Latin, Bernard, and then just what the words mean? Yeah, I, I love in order to love. Amo ut amor, ut amar. I love in order to love. I love only for loving. That love comes without a why. Love comes without a why. Love and true love can have no purpose beyond itself. Mm. And but Bernard constructed, he says, well, you have the love of children, you have the, you know, you have the love of et cetera, et cetera. But he said the, the only love that is completely uh, free that we know is the love between man and woman. They love only in order to love. The bride has no other purpose. She's not looking for an inheritance, at least in Bernard's view. She's not it's looking for rewards. She's loving because she loves mm. and she wishes to love. And the bridegroom loves in the same way. I'm struck by um, the idea of detachment in Eckhart and then where Mechtild says when we come to God, we clothe ourselves in ourselves. So it's, it almost feels like with her it's like I'm, I'm actually bringing, I'm not letting go of everything, I'm, I'm coming, I'm bringing my whole of myself into God's presence. Could, could you speak to how that might be interpreted? Well, I, I think Eckhart's notion of detachment is getting rid of the false self. Then you have your true self, which you can give to God. And that may well be what our friend Mechtel is talking. And, you know, Thomas Merton, to go back to some we've talked, Merton is very, very powerful on this, on this too. The necessity of getting rid of the false self mm. and trying to find the true self, which is the self that we can really come into contact with God. If we're trying to get into contact with God with the false self, with all that kind of covering, it's not mm -hmm. going to happen. Uh, so, 
you might say these mystics are emphasizing different things. And, and what Mechtild is trying to give to God is their true self. What Eckhart is saying is that it, you can't do that until you get rid of the false self, mm. until you unload all of that baggage. And that's what Merton was saying, you know, eight, eight, 800 years later, uh, because I, one of the most powerful things about uh, Merton's mysticism I found as I was writing up this chapter on him was that that emphasis over and over again in all of his writings about getting rid of the false self and really analyzing yourself because we fool ourselves so easily mm -hmm. about, uh, you know, what is our true self. Uh, Eck, yeah, Merton was very, very uh, forthright about how much of the false self remains in, in all of us, no matter how hard we try, but we've mm -hmm. got to keep trying. Once I was at spiritual direction with Merton and I asked him what he thought heaven was like. And he said, well, one thing for sure, there won't be much of you there. <laughs> he said, that's why we all call it heaven, that there's no egos in heaven. You know, I mean, there's the, the divinity of ourselves shining forth. Yeah, no, that's, a good, that's a very good answer. <laughs> oh, and one more thing, I say one more thing about Merton is so true, is that the true self is the self right at this moment that's being actively created by God, being given way to us as the truth of ourself, that there's no separate self that has to try to find its way to God. For God to be is to give being, for us to be is to receive being, like Eckhart. There's a meeting, a uh, point verge, the place that that oneness, that, that the true self is found there. And they're, they're one thing being looked at from two different perspectives. Exactly, yes. And I think what's striking about Eckhart too is that he lived in the world. And I think our listeners were enjoyed hearing from a mystic who wasn't, you know, locked away in a monastery, but was very active in the world. And I just wonder if you have any thoughts on that, Bernard, how that influenced his teaching. Well, you know, th this is true uh, in a number of ways about the 13th century, because uh, there's a great shift, I think, in Christian mysticism at the beginning of the 13th century, uh, where the new religious orders move out into the world. You know, the, the ideal is no longer the enclosed separation between monastics and the world. That was always just an ideal. It was never a reality. But the ideal of the of the mendicant orders, Franciscans and, and Dominicans, and then the Beguines, who were their temporaries, is that uh, the gospel is to be lived in the world, hmm. uh, in, in the world of people. And, of course, their vocations are to meet with people, to preach to people, to serve as an example to people uh, of, of poverty, etc. So th there's a kind of what I call a secularization that is, they're moving out into the sacrum of the world in a way that was rather different from the old model, which was a separation model. Hmm. There is at the same time what I like to call a kind of democratization in the sense that the emphasis now is that it's not just religious people, special, uh, you know, special practitioners who can find God. Anybody can find God. Hmm. This is what Eckhart's preaching is, uh, is, is basically all about. There's no special people. Everybody is invited to the banquet in that sense. And that's what he's trying to do when he preaches. And let's remember his sermons, which are extremely challenging, difficult, uh, et cetera, even, even today to understand. They were preached to the ordinary people. Yeah. I mean, he did some preaching to religious women and other kinds of things. But most of his sermons were given from the pulpit to a whole audience that we would think of as, oh, ignorant medieval people. Many of them couldn't read and write. But they listened to Eckhart. They may not have always understood him, but he was a very popular preacher. So uh, I, I think that uh, he's a challenge in that sense to a lot of the preaching today, which is so theologically poor. Uh, whereas Eckhart preached the most difficult forms of deep truth, spiritual, mystical kinds of truth, to a general audience and mm. felt that he at least had to do that and to try to invite these people to try to get some knowledge of what he was doing. One of Eckhart Sturman's has a famous uh, uh, illustration where he says, I'm coming today to preach from, you know, from the pulpit. I have to give you this message. He said, he said, I would have to preach to the collection box, even if none of you were here. <laughs> <laughs> he felt called to give this message. <laughs> and for Eckhart, preacher doesn't preach himself. The preacher is only the voice of God in that sense, the kind of trumpet announcing God's message and being compelled by God to give this message. Even if there's nobody there 
or nobody nobody's going to understand it. You give it to the collection box. Very yeah. collection boxes in the medical. <laughs> That's brilliant. And Mechtild had the same kind of thing. The way she starts her book, the the flowing light of the Godhead, saying that God's actually writing the book. She's not writing the book. No, uh, Mechtild is tremendously daring because she's putting her book on on level with the Gospels. <laughs> I call Mechtild one of the four female evan- evangelists <laughs> of the of the 13th century, I got in trouble from some scripture scholars for calling these women evangelists, but I'm standing my ground. (laughs) (laughs) They are evangelists. And and Mechtild, at the opening of the flowing light, says that, you know, I'm talking to God. And then she has this vision of God where God is holding her book in his hand because somebody says, well, you know, you're going to get in trouble for writing this. So God appears to her holding her book in his hand yeah. and says, if they don't like this book, let them try to snatch it out of my hand. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's amazing. She's so convinced, obviously. Yeah. The other thing that's amazing about her, Bernard, is uh, that she, um, towards the end of her life, when she was still writing the book, she she lost her sense of God's presence. She went through well, many I mean, she, she has some very powerful experiences of mystical dereliction. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Being under Lucifer's tail, yeah. as she once calls it in a very powerful image, that where where are you now? I'm under Lucifer's tail. Not mm-hmm. a very pleasant place to be, obviously. <laughs> but that's what her experience of, of, you know, desolation and God had separated himself. Uh, you know, he had, uh, she talks about in the middle hydrant of orphan height, you know, that God has somehow thrown her out that she's been discarded that was part of her her mystical path this is comparable again we talk about john of the cross and various others but it's powerful throughout the whole range of um, of medieval mystics it's not as much of it in eckhart but eckhart's follower john towler another dominican has some of the most uh, some of the strongest expressions of the uh, you know divine dereliction and being left by God. It's one of the reasons that Martin Luther loved Towler so much because mm-hmm. there's experience you know uh, of the the angst before God. He said, "Oh, Towler, Towler knew what this was all about." You know? To me, in a way, it gives credibility to this mystical path because they've touched something so deep that even when they can't experience it directly through the senses. They they stay true to it. Yes. Well, I mean, I think it's not that it's any less painful. Uh, that when you read the mystics, it's tremendously painful, but they have the the wisdom or been given the wisdom to recognize it's a crucial element of what what God's plan for them is, mm-hmm. and also and also for many uh, many others. I mean, and Teresa obviously Teresa's in, powerful visions of hell she's being consigned to hell uh, in one uh, famous chapter in the uh, in in the life where she feels that she's been she's been sent to hell and she's being put in a little box in hell there to, to rot for all eternity so she felt it too although it's mm. not it's not as central a theme in her writings as it is in John of the Cross but it's certainly recognized and um, don't forget it was Teresa who made the famous statement about God why you know she asked the guy you know why he was sending her this suffering and she said now i can understand you why you have so few friends this is what <laughs> this is what you do to your friends <laughs> so it's almost like forced path of detachment well yeah that's part of the i think that's part of the process and this is why you know eckhart never talks about what we would call ascetical practice again it's just so different from what so many of his contemporaries were I think Eckhart's idea, and it comes across in some of his vernacular uh, treatises, that you're going to have enough suffering in the course of your life. You don't have to seek out more suffering. That's only that's only an attachment. Actually, you want to you're attached to your own suffering. So, isn't it wonderful that I can suffer so much? No, Eckhart, suffering is going to come your way no matter what. So you don't seek out other forms of suffering. You learn to accept what suffering comes your way in the same spirit that Jesus accepted the cross. Quite powerful, Eckhart's famous Book of Consolation. This is the essence of the, of the Book of Consolation. Don't seek suffering, but learn how to deal with suffering. You're going to have to encounter no matter what you do. Nobody's going to avoid it. Mm, that's beautiful. 
Yeah, accept, accepting reality as as it is. Yeah, as it comes your way. Yeah, beautiful. Well, we're unfortunately coming to the end of our time, so this has been a real joy to be with you, Bernard. Um, Jim, do you have any closing thoughts, statements, or questions? Yeah, just two things. Um, one, sometimes when I read the sermons of Eckhart or imagine him talking to the people in church, I get the feeling that if you someone's sitting there listening to them and they had just fallen in love or they just had a child or their mother just died, whatever, they'd get a feeling he was trying to put words to the depths of what was stirring in them. Like it touched some deep play, the vitality of it like went there and invited them to find God there and so on. And uh, like life, life. And the, and the second thing I wanna share in closing is, I'm so grateful to you, Bernard, for your years of commitment and how many people that you've helped, uh, like as contemplative ministry, touching the world in this way, in a very kind of pastoral scholastic clarity. And also, what a blessing this has been to our podcast. Seriously, it's been like a high watermark I think for the seriously for the listeners, I'm so grateful. That you're well, thank you, Jim. I, I appreciate this, and I, I'm I'm always anxious and happy to talk about the mystics. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I'll say thank you to you also, Ben and Begin, as someone who felt called to this mystical path. I I couldn't put my hands around it, and reading your book, your books has helped given a shape to something that um, is very hard to to come to like a, a deep understanding so I'm just so grateful and I'm sure many many of our listeners will be holding out gratitude for you thank you both Jim and Kristen and I, I as I said I appreciate the, the opportunity and uh, wish you and the podcast all success thank you for listening to this episode of turning to the mystics a podcast created by the Centre for Action and Contemplation. We'll see you again soon. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Centre for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.